Hey everyone, this is Dan, the Six Figure Couch Surfer. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I have an interview with my good friend and my mentor, Ron Guth, and he is a numismatist. I just learned that word. That is somebody who studies coins. So Ron, thank you for tuning for uh, jumping in from sunny San Diego. Desire, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. That is my middle name, by the way, everyone. So if you want to know that's on the podcast, Danny, Zaya, so you can call me either name. So here we go, Ron. So I wanted to get into a little bit of the adventure of your life, how you created your own company, working with coins from all around the world. So the first question that I want to ask is probably the first question I asked you when I met you is what's the most expensive coin you've ever handled? Oh, the most expensive coin I've ever handled is probably in six figures. Uh, but that's certainly not the most expensive coin. There have been coins that have sold at auction for $10 million. Have you ever seen one in real life, a million dollar coin? Oh yeah, yeah, I see them all the time. I, um, you go to coin conventions and they'll be on display. Uh, a lot of the time they sell at auction. So if you go to the auction, you can uh, view the lots beforehand. So you can actually see the coin in real life and uh, then you can bid on it at auction if you were uh, that brave. What makes a coin so expensive? Uh, mostly rarity, but just because a coin is rare doesn't mean it's valuable. A lot, of, a lot of it has to do with the story about the coin. You know, the the lore, uh, who may have owned it in the past. You know, is it a is it a coin that everybody has always recognized as something rare, and it doesn't have to be old. It can be something from the nineteen hundreds. Hmm. So these aren't just ancient coins. It could be fairly recent. No. Yeah, in fact, in fact, there are ancient coins that you can buy for 10 or $20, like a widow's mite. Uh, you can buy those for $10. Wow. So what about pirate's gold? Have you ever touched a pirate's treasure before? Oh, sure. I've, I've owned pirate's treasure, uh, you know, pillar dollars, uh, atocha bars, uh, all kinds of stuff that gets pulled up out of the ocean. Wow, what about a Spanish? Is it the doubloon? A doubloon, yeah. The gold, the gold was a doubloon, and the silver pieces are usually eight reals. And you've had those in your shop? Yes, yes. The, they're they're available. A lot of the stuff has been pulled up uh, from shipwrecks. Uh, the doubloons are not cheap because they're gold. They have a lot of intrinsic value, but the silver eight reals you can buy relatively inexpensively. Wow. So. What do you think about cryptocurrency in the study of ancient coins? Are you bothered by the fact that we have digital coins these days? Well, obviously, for coin collectors, um, cryptocurrency doesn't do you any good. It's you know, it's a virtual currency, so collectors like to have something physical to hold. Uh, so Bitcoin is of no interest to numismatists, but I, I think it's the future of money. You really do. I mean, you study the history of money, don't you? And, and you understand the intrinsic value and in what humans have placed within different markets over time. I'm assuming that's a part of your kind of your study and where you come from. So sure, but it's just a, it's just a natural evolution of money. Um, you know, the money replaced the barter system. You know, people would trade a goat for a bushel of wheat or whatever it was. And once money came in. Uh, you know, you could actually put some value on your labor and that would allow you to go out and buy the goat instead of having to trade for it. So um, today, you know, virtual currency 
you know, back 30, 40 years ago when, when I was in business uh, or you had a physical coin shop, the uh, people would pay with a check. You would deposit the check into the bank and it would take a week for it to clear. Today, with virtual currency like PayPal, I can do an instant transfer from my PayPal account to my bank account in literally 10 seconds. And so cryptocurrency is just a, a, another evolution towards a cashless society. Definitely. I heard when XPay came out, when Elon Musk was working on XPay before it turned into PayPal, they, they broke some rules or there were some rules that were getting in place immediately following their success. And so they, they jumped through a window that was just quick enough in, or, in order to create PayPal and just revolutionize the market, which is really interesting. Good timing on their end. Yeah, I think, I think initially they were trying to, uh, the regulators were trying to classify them as a bank. Right. Uh, but that, that didn't work. So, uh, yeah, good for good for them. I mean, uh, uh, PayPal revolutionized uh, uh, transactions on eBay. And uh, I mean, still, it's a ubiquitous platform that, you know, everybody has or uses. So, random question. Does laundering money mean that people actually washed it in the machine? Why did that phrase come into existence when it comes to laundering money? Well, there, there is such a thing as laundering money. I think the Fed uh, takes money... Uh, out of circulation and they they do two things to it they clean it up on one side and then if it's so far damaged they'll actually destroy it but that's not what laundering money means in the criminal sense there they're talking about uh taking money and then running running it through a quasi-legitimate business to to you know get it back into circulation so that it's not tainted um if you watch the Netflix series Ozark, that's all about laundering money, uh, and, and other other shows talk, talk about that. But it's basically trying to take money that is Ill, Ill, illegitimately gained and then cleaning it up and making it legitimate. And so, when it comes to the value of money, uh, sorry, that this super that was a super random tangent, but I, my brain works that way. When it comes to money versus, let's say, natural resources like gold, just the ore itself, or diamonds, jewelry, um, gems, precious gems. Um, those, those are rare elements in, in the Earth's crust. Those are actually rare you know, molecules in the composition of Earth. But coins, on the other hand, can be simply stamped with images of kings and Caesars and from different civilizations. In, in my understanding, is the, the value, the intrinsic value of what humans call money is that much more of our own imagination creating that, or does it really have to do with the origination of the elements in our planet? Well, it, it has to do with perception. Um, you know, gold and silver became money because they were rare. Uh, people recognized that they were difficult to obtain. <clears throat> but, but if you go to some countries like, um, uh, oh, what's the name of this, uh, the island? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's an island uh, near um, uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, I, let's see, I'm totally confused here. Yap and Palau are two islands that are near each other. Palau has this naturally occurring stone that the islanders from Yap would travel across the ocean in these big seagoing canoes, and they would mine this stone uh, on Palau and bring it back at great risk across the ocean in the form of big disks or wheels, and they would plant them in front of their houses, and they represented money. But this is something that you know you and I would call a stone, but to them that was 
uh, real, real money. And so um, what occurred later on was a, an enterprising man uh, got hold of a freighter and he went over to Palau and he used dynamite and, you know, modern mining tools. And he, he just made all these stones and brought them back to Yap. And, and he was like a rich guy. But what he did was he inflated the money supply and the value of all Yap stones began to decrease because of what he was doing. So uh, money, uh, the intrinsic value of metals or stone or whatever comes from uh, humans attributing scarcity and value to these items. So for instance, in America, when, uh, when we first started producing money in 1792, uh, the federal government, uh, you know, we had gold and silver coins and there was a ratio of 15 to one, 15 dollars to one dollar, or, or gold was worth 15 times silver. And each of the coins had to contain a certain amount of value, otherwise the, the people wouldn't accept them. Uh, but now, today, uh, you know, we went off the gold standard in 1933. We went off the silver in 1964. And today, our money is essentially worthless, and yet we still attribute value to it because historically, we have always looked at the dollar as being a, a value. But in reality, it's only valuable because people think it's valuable or make it valuable. Wow, that's... Uh... It's, it's hard to envision this and, and on a global scale, all these different civilizations around the world creating their own currencies, debating whose currency is worth more than someone else's. So I guess that's my next question. How does a, a nation state, a geographical entity dictate whether or not they're higher or lower on the global scale? I mean, I understand it comes to, it has something to do with the, the nation's power and how much I don't know, trade they have jurisdiction over around the world, how many natural resources, but is that it? Is it simply what they offer the world market? How is, from nation to nation, how does that vary? Well, it, it varies a lot. I mean, uh, if you look at, you know, every day there are currency exchange rates between, you know, the euro and the dollar and the yuan from China, you know, these currencies fluctuate all the time. And sometimes they fluctuate quite wildly, and, and they can change dramatically over time just based on economic conditions. So, like, if you look at the example of the Eurozone, uh, Greece was going into huge defaults and everything, but they're still under the Euro, and yet they had to be propped up by the, the other more prosperous nations. Um, if you look at, say, the Canadian dollar versus the U.S. dollar, you know, at one point they were close to par. I think they're vastly different now. The euro is, uh, I think, a dollar ten or a dollar eleven. So uh, it, it all depends on what you mentioned, trade. That's a, that's a great thing. If you have a big trade deficit, that's an imbalance that creates difference, differences in values of the currency. So, but, but even in, in America, when America was first formed, each of the 13 colonies had their own monetary system. And if you took a piece of money from New Jersey into, say, uh, Georgia, there was a huge um, discount uh, for, for transacting that, that money because, first of all, in order to get full value for the money, the Georgia guy would have to bring it all the way back to New Jersey to, to get full value. So the cost of doing that was baked into the discount. 
Did this occur back in the ancient ancient days as well? I mean, thousands of years ago, was there still like you know inflation and competition between different nations? I mean, was the Roman coin always much stronger than the rest of the world because they conquered everyone? I mean, how did that work? Well, here's the here's the trick. Here's the real trick. Gold is gold, whether it's it's stamped in you know Julius Caesar's face or uh, Danny Danny Joseph's face. You know, it's it's going to be the same chunk of gold so back in the day when money was really money it had to contain a certain amount of gold and if you took that gold from say Sumeria to Turkey to find out what value it was they would simply throw it on a scale and say oh yeah okay you've got an ounce of gold and this is what it's worth so there wasn't a big disparity but today because um, money is not backed by anything uh, governments could print money all they want, which is exactly what's happening in, here in America. Look at the amount of our debt now, 24, we're approaching $24 trillion, and, and it's gone up $3 trillion, I think, just this year. I mean, that's just made money. It's just fake money being put out there. And But still, as long as the Americans and the world believe that this dollar is worth a dollar, they're going to keep trading in it. But at some point, they're going to wake up and say, oh, wait a minute, There's this dollar is not worth anything, and therefore, um, you know, I want more of them to before I sell you my object. Did Rome ever experience this back in the day with their money, with their currency? Yeah, they debased it. They, they started out, let's say they had, uh, it's kind of like a cereal box. You know, if you think about what cereal boxes looked at you know, 10, 20 years ago, they were bigger. They contained more of the product uh, the same thing with coins they were bigger they had more silver and then they, they said well let's take a little bit of silver out and then they said well let's uh, let's uh, uh, make them smaller and so governments can do that if you or I did that we would be we'd have our hands cut off for counterfeiting or debasement you know that, that's highly illegal uh, but this is what happens over time the currency gets debased and becomes worth less and less and then eventually collapses. So you're saying ancient Rome did that? The Caesars, somebody dictated, I want our coins as a, as a nation to, be, to start to become smaller in, in diameter? Uh, well, not necessarily smaller in diameter, but they might be le- uh, less weight. Um, if you look at um, some of the coins in the late Roman Empire, getting into the Byzantine Empire, I mean, some of these things are like wafer thin, uh, or they're made of billin, which is basically just you know low-grade silver, or they made them out of copper and then they silver-plated them, which is exactly what we're doing here in America. If you look at a penny, which used to contain pure copper, now it's a chunk of zinc with the copper plating on the front of it, and after several years, especially in a harsh environment, that copper plating corrodes off and those coins underneath are ugly speaking of coin, uh, pennies can you tell me about those is it the the civil war pennies there's a few uh, i don't know if they're called red pennies but they're very expensive i've heard or they're super rare i'm not sure what you mean there um the the ones when you when you at first asked your question the thing that first popped to mind was the steel pennies of 1943 uh, during World War II, you know, they needed the copper for munitions and war material. So they said, well, instead of making the pennies out of copper, we're going to make them out of uh, steel. 
and will zinc coat them so they're they're they have a white color and they're very very common i mean they make you know literally million tens and hundreds of millions of those but a few of them were accidentally made in the old copper so those are very valuable and they can be worth upwards of a hundred thousand you know several hundred thousand dollars wow um that's how many of those exist uh, not too many, maybe a couple dozen at most, but and they're basically errors. They're they're just mistakes. They were never meant to be released. Have they been found? I mean, how many are oh, known? Yeah. How many are known oh, to exist out of that batch? Well, um, there, like I said, a couple dozen of different. You know, 1943, they were made in Philadelphia, Denver, and San Francisco. So about a couple dozen. Uh, and occasionally one will show up. I mean, but it might be, you know, once every 10 or 20 or 30 years. And that person who found it just made a couple hundred thousand dollars from a penny. Oh, yeah. That, that, that happens all the time where error coins are found in uh, mint bags or, uh, you know, it, 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 there's some windfalls all the time. It's, it's sometimes worth opening up a mint bag of coins and seeing if there's any errors in there. Have you? They're not all worth that much, but you know, if they could be worth even ten, twenty dollars a piece, that's that's a profit. So, I do want to ask you about the whole how the question about how much buried treasure or I guess sunken treasure exists in the oceans. But let me put a pin on that question. You can answer that next. The first question I wanted to ask before that, um, I'm totally blanking on. Was it? Oh yeah. Do you have any stories about somebody who came in? with a few coins and did not, you know, they asked you to check out the value because that's part of your, you're certified in that, correct? In, in establishing the value of a coin. Um, yes. What, yeah, do you have I, any, can, I can appraise them, sure. That's the word, appraise. Do you have any stories about somebody who came in and you, your mind was blown at what they had? They had no idea at the value that they possessed. Yeah, I was doing, uh, I used to work for the professional coin grading service and at one of their shows in Long Beach, uh, California, they have uh, they have a meet the expert uh, session where people can bring in coins and have them evaluated for either grading or value, <clears throat> kind of like an antiques roadshow. So I was uh, I was on the desk at that time, and a guy came in and he had a silver dollar and a twenty dollar gold piece and some other coin that was of minimal value, and they were all in a leather pouch, and he didn't know what they were worth. They'd been given to him by his uh, dead father. And so he, he, he handed them to me, and he, and he asked me what they were worth. And um, he thought that the gold coin would be worth the most because it's, you know, a big $20 gold piece and has about one point, no, I'm sorry, 0.98 ounces of gold in it. So he was all excited about that. And I looked at the silver dollar, and I said, you know, this coin is probably worth a little bit more. And he goes, oh, really? Why? And I go, well, it's in 1893. A dollar made in San Francisco. It's extremely rare, and this is a really, really nice one. And I said, this coin alone is probably worth fifty thousand dollars. And he just about fell over, of course. And the twenty-dollar gold piece was only worth about two thousand uh, dollars. But he had the coin graded, and um, uh, it ended up in auction, and I think it sold for somewhere around seventy-five thousand dollars. So here's a guy that came in. You know, thinking that he might have had a couple thousand dollars worth of coins, and he ended up with, you know, quite a quite a nice little chunk of change, so to speak. Yeah, pun intended. That's that's incredible. Um, and now I know that you had 
started your own company in, in selling coins. Um, can we talk about a little bit? Well, before that, now let's answer the oceans question. How many dollars are out there in the ocean for us to go scuba dive and find? Uh, uh, scuba diving, not too many. Uh, your best bet is to just go off the shores of Florida. The, the, you're really the best bet is to wait for a hurricane or a big storm and to just take your metal detector out on the beach and see what gets uh, exposed or washed up. Uh, but most of the, especially the Spanish uh, fleet that was destroyed was in the Caribbean in that in the Florida area. You know, there's a lot of shallow water there and, and a lot of storms. So they, um, and they, they had to follow the Gulf Stream to get back to Europe. So the Gulf Stream goes up along the coast of Florida and up the coast of America and over into Europe. So they all had to follow the same route. And so along that route is, you know, the, the shallow water, the storms and pirates. And so a, a lot of those ships were destroyed or scuttled or whatever. So there's stuff still sitting on the uh, bottom of the ocean. I, I couldn't give you a value, a total value or even a guesstimate, but it's got to be in the, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Wow. Um, so, so there's, there's still stuff out there, still stuff being discovered all the time. You look at the, uh, the Titanic. Now, the Titanic was a great discovery, <clears throat> but it didn't have any much money on it. But they use the same technology now to search for other ships back where they back where the real money is. And they found the Central America, which had gone down off the coast of North Carolina in the 1850s, and that ended up with I don't know, I'm, I think a billion or so dollars worth of gold coins that were recovered using these uh, remote robots and that sort of thing. The reason I laughed when you said scuba dive is because I think they were in like a, a mile or two of water. And, you know, obviously you can swim down with your snorkel and get that, but <laughs> you can try. Oh, yeah. At some point it might be worth it if it's billions, right? What? Um, yeah. Who gets money? Who, uh, who gets ownership of that? Who has jurisdiction over just component parts of the ocean past international waters where, uh, you know, it belonged to someone in the past. Is it now up for grabs? Well, there's a lot of uh, stuff, a lot of territorial disputes. Uh, then you uh, have insurance companies that have paid for the <clears throat> treasurer years ago, and, and you end up going into court. And that's exactly what happened with the Central America and a couple of the other shipwrecks. There's a big fight about who actually owns the stuff. And eventually that all gets resolved. Um, you know, the lawyers make a lot of money, but somebody ends up with it, and they typically sell the treasure. Uh, now, if it's an international dispute, like Spain has um, uh, taken or claimed ownership of certain fines, and, uh, uh, you know, depending on how, how you can negotiate with them, they either take the treasure completely or they might uh, allow you to keep portions of it uh, or sell portions of it but it it's always a big fight if there's a if there's a big treasure to be found there's a big fight wow um yeah that's incredible i, I can't even imagine the animosity towards one another and a group of people digging up that amount of treasure how many people would would hear about it when it's in the scale of millions of dollars and it's been unclaimed that's just mind-blowing to me the interesting thing about Bitcoin is when you lose an encrypted coin, you don't have the encryption key for it. It's gone forever. It's locked up in that blockchain. I know a friend yeah. who's lost several coins and uh, he just, he can't find his that little thumb drive and um, 
yeah. So anyways, it's quite a quite a bit of, of money there locked away. But uh, who knows? Maybe someday they'll find a way to uh, dive into that encrypted ocean and dig them out. And you know they got to. I mean, um, I'm I'm in the same situation. I did some mining, some crypto mining, a couple of years ago, and I have a little little hard disk, a tiny hard disk that um, has some cryptocurrency on it. Now I have the keys, but the cost of um, redeeming that currency exceeds its value. So, you know, you get those issues also. Yeah. Well, let's talk about. We'll, we'll briefly get into business ownership and the audacity you had to face the, uh, the trials in order to be successful, but we can save part two for, for another discussion as we press up against our time here. But when, uh, when it comes to selling coins, I noticed it was very similar to the industry I came from, um, with, especially when it came to headhunting and a few other types of consultation that I was running for organizations in that I wouldn't get paid for long stretches of time when I did get paid, it was a good amount of money. However, I had to endure the, the famine before the feast. And when it comes to the, the types of collectors in the, in the coin world, they're not jumping in and out of the, or walking into the brick and mortar all the time. Um, it, but, but when one does walk in and they're serious about buying, they, they tend to spend a bunch of, of money on, on those coins. So can you talk about just the patience required to succeed in, in an industry like that where it, it seems to be a very specialized realm that you operate in. Yeah, I think that anytime you have a brick and mortar business, whether it's coins or antiques or, or anything that is you know, it just a, an odd product, you have to be ready for the ups and downs of the literally the finance. You know, one day you won't sell anything, the next day you'll sell a couple thousand. You know, you just you can't predict what's going to happen, and if you're not psychologically ready for that, you are going to be a mental wreck. Because if you can't, you know, if if you see every bad day as a doomsday, then you're just gonna you're just gonna be an emotional wreck. So um, you have to be able to survive those sort of things and just realize that this is the normal function of a business. Now I can't imagine being a brick and mortar business right now, especially non-essential because nothing is coming in. I, I just feel for those people because, you know, their worst nightmares have come true. Yeah. COVID's definitely changing, changing the world. And, uh, I like how Mark Cuban addressed the situation because he's a very, I mean, not only is he just a billionaire who's aggressive and assertive and he, he gets things done, but he's very innovative. And, um, I appreciate how he sees, uh, as many people do, a shift in the way that we transact, in the way that we um, base our, our economic infrastructure. Is there a way that we can allow people a, fr- a flex program to work from home, to still sell their products, to work just as if the brick and mortar was open and keep our American economy more than relevant, make it just so forward thinking, so progressive. And I have a friend from um, South Korea and she said that the, re- the the lifestyle in South Korea didn't really change much because they've already been a fairly progressive society in the way that their economic structure is, is operating. And I think that I'd like to see this as an opportunity because so many people are suffering. There's so much uncertainty, but 
as we're discussing, money is, I believe it's malleable in, in the sense that we as a people dictate what its worth is and how we can use it. But I'm not an economist and I'm not a numismatist, but uh, I'm just sort of rambling. Well, I think you're right. This this COVID pandemic has literally changed the way that we do business in America. I mean, I feel my heart goes out to everybody that's lost their jobs. We have, I have some family members that have lost their jobs because of COVID. But on the other hand, you've got uh, people that are now working at home, teleworking, and the businesses are realizing that, hey, we don't have to have a physical uh, office building. Uh, we, you know, we can we can still run and be successful by adapting to these uh, these new technologies. Uh, my grandkids they do their piano lessons over Zoom. Uh, you know, there's Go to Meeting. There's all these other programs where you can you can meet together without fear of um, contamination or anything like that. And it's convenient. You don't have to commute half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour to get to the office when you can do the same thing. So we're actually more productive than we were uh, under the old system. So I think when we come back, when the economy opens back up, there's going to be some big changes. Mm. Hopefully great. To the positive. positive. Hopefully some great stuff ahead. So as we wrap this up, my last question for you, and we can just end the interview after this is really fun talking to you. I have so many other questions, but I'll save them for part two and three. I'm sure. But, uh, do you, are there any surprising facts that you would leave us with about, about coins specifically, whether it is from the ancient world, whether it is more recent in human history, is there anything that stands out to you as just something that really sparked your curiosity, imagination, just that you found very surprising about humans and coins? Well, I think the coins are a, a, a literally a tangible link to our past. And, you know, we often say, you know, oh, if this coin could talk, you know, it could tell us where it's been, you know, who's, who spent it, uh, you know, where it's traveled around the world. Uh, and, and the things that I've learned from coins are things that I, I tried to learn in school but really failed at just because of the way they were taught. Like, for instance... I couldn't stand history. Uh, you know, it was, you know, memorizing dates and names and that sort of thing. But once I got into coins, you know, I, I look at a coin and say it's, you know, we talked about a coin from Julius Caesar. Well, well, who is this person that's on the coin? They're on there for a reason. Why is it important? I, I wrote a book called The 100 Greatest Women on Coins, and it, it all came about because I wanted to find out, first of all, how many women were actually placed on a coin? You know, I figured it'd just be you know a couple dozen or a couple hundred. It turned out to be over 700 women have been placed on coins, and they're placed there for a reason because they're an important part of history, or they've made some contribution to science, or you know, women's voting. Um, and you can learn about geography from coins, uh, economics from coins, uh, it, all these things that become very real because you actually have this physical object in your hand. I've I've, uh, taught a couple um, things called coins in the classroom where, you know, you engage with young people and boy, you throw a coin out there and all of a sudden their eyes light up and, and they become very interested 
And uh, when they see that, you know, this is a, a coin from 2,000 years ago, or it's a coin that has an ounce of gold in it or, or whatever, they, it, it's a way to get their attention. So I think coins can be used as a teaching tool to uh, really get kids especially excited about these subjects that are otherwise very boring. All right. Well, now I have to ask one more question. Who was, who was one of the first women on the, on the coin? Well, you have to go way back, but the, uh, in ancient times, the first depictions of females were of goddesses. Mm. You know, Athena, uh, there's a, bu- a bunch of different goddesses. Nowadays, it's more like real women. Uh, but some of the countries, um, you know, their their job as a government is to sell coin, not, not just make coins for circulation, but to make money by selling coins to collectors. Mm. So they're putting on you know, you name a woman and she'd most likely been on a coin. We've got Marilyn Monroe, we've got Betty Boop, we've got, uh, you know, Grace Kelly, but probably the woman that has been on more coins than anybody else, who would your guess be? Lady Liberty. Well, Lady Liberty, yeah, she's, yeah, I, w- I would say uh, as a, um, as an, a female emblem, yes, I'm talking about a real woman. Who H- Helen think? of Troy. Hell of Troy, that's way down there. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> the woman uh, that's been on more coins than anyone else in, in history is Queen Elizabeth. Ah, makes sense. Because if you think about it, she's been queen now. She, I think she just turned 94. and She's been, she's been the longest reigning monarch mm-hmm. of England. Yep. So every coin in the British Commonwealth, the British Empire, from 1953 on has had her picture on it. Does that mean she can walk into any store that she wants and grab any item and not have to pay for it? Oh, sure. She doesn't need money, but we do. Huh. I know she makes money from the people. Um, I know that they're... Anyway, we can get into that later. Just... I'm going to keep... I'm going to keep going on rants, but... um, Great talking to you, Ron. I appreciate it, and I... At some point, I'd like to offer listeners a little bit of um, a dive into the the guidance that you have as a mentor, um, somebody who's guided me in my business endeavors and whatnot. There's a lot of wisdom to be had in, in the lessons you've learned in life and all the great things you've done. So um, with that, I will say thank you very much for speaking with me and thank you all for listening and stay tuned for another exciting interview. Well, thank you, Zaya. Talk to you soon.